life sure gets busy, doesn't it? Well, we understand. With all the certifications you have, finding the right kind of continuing education that fits your schedule can be a real challenge. That's where the FlightBridge Ed podcast subscription comes in. For less than $5 a month, the FlightBridge Ed podcast subscription gives you top-notch accredited CE while you listen. Visit FlightBridgeEd.com for more information or to sign up today. The FlightBridge Ed podcast subscription, another way we're being your partner in discovery. This is Second Shift. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Second Shift. Mike Verkestra to Sonny, along with our special guest, Jamie Kennel, all the way from the Hood Canal in Mason County Fire District number 17. He snuck into the station because they have better Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that a fair statement? Absolutely. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Oh, Ratu, what's going on, pal? I get my shot tomorrow. Oh my gosh, you're getting it. Get it tomorrow. That's so good. Work. You know, there's a rule in emergency medicine, never schedule something for like right after your shift. Well, duh. But I'm, te- I'm, te- I'm testing that rule. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I, I have a, um, I'm working tomorrow from 6.30 to 2.30 and then I have my shot at, at four. Nice. So I, I should be okay. And, and in reality, Unless I'm doing compressions on somebody at three forty-five, no, I'm just saying, if I'm still there or still have stuff to do, I can still book out for fifteen minutes. To yeah, that's true. You can. So. Jamie, are you going to get the shot? I definitely am. I want to get two if I can. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they'll let me though. True. Twenty-one to twenty-eight days apart, or are you talking about two at the same time? <laughs> two at the same time, if I could. No, I, it's important they go to other people. Uh, yeah, through uh, through OHSU, I'm in line to get it. Although I'm a on the academic side and don't have patient-facing responsibilities, so I'm lower on the list. Yeah, which is just fine. Which is just how it should be. Yeah, yeah. I think they're doing a good job of getting the sort of the priority. Of people, I, I think they've done a good job with that. I know the Fed sort of had some best practices and some ideas about that, um, and then sort of passed that off to the state. And I think they've pretty much followed suit with a lot of those recommendations. So, you know, um, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, it's still. I mean, the reality is, is this, it's just a logistical freaking nightmare, right? Oh yeah. I mean, if if everybody in the country got a shot, there'd be eight hundred million doses to give. Um, Great. There, you know, that's not going to happen, of course. Yeah. Um, but you know, we can hope that enough people get it that we start getting close to or near herd immunity. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, um, yeah, it's still a logistical, just nightmare. Yeah, this weird in between stage is going to be interesting. We've got some folks that have it, some folks that don't. Probably in a clinical setting, all the same PPE rules. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah, I know OHSU was debating and decided not to do this, but to uh, uh, give everybody special stickers uh, that have received the vaccine. And there's oh. some controversy around, you know, promoting that there are healthcare people that have it, and would that make people feel safer, oh. or would it generate some animosity? Why are you special and I'm not? Hmm. 
Yep. You know, during flu season at Providence, they did that um, because if you you didn't have to wear a mask if you had right. your vaccine. Yep. But um, I suspect that given this pandemic, people will be wearing masks for a in while. clinical settings, kind of standard. Yeah. It might not be an N95. Yeah. And it might not be where you have to, you know, it, it might be. So when this first started, we were allowed to go into a patient's room without a mask on if they had like a non-medical complaint. So maybe that will be, but again, the masks protect our patients from me, not necessarily me from the patient. So, but yeah, this in between time is going to be interesting. Um, I, the, the, the two big vaccines and we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about this at length on Sunday, aren't we, Mike? Yeah, we've, we've got yet, Another live broadcast. This, oh, I haven't even had a chance yeah. to send it out yet. <laughs> For crying out loud, it's it's uh, it's part two, as Jarvis would say. Part two, really, of our mRNA vaccine series that we started just the other day, which, by the way, so many views, so many shares, so many great messages and texts and to all of us about how they appreciate that so much. Well, guess what? We're going to do it again, but this time we're going to have a lighthouse focus on it and we're going to look at all the literature. So as you guys probably heard, like, uh, you know, there's there some papers that have been released as of this week and some information on the clinical trials and all that stuff. And uh, we have special guest, Dr. Veer Villathani from Fort Worth, uh, MedTrans 911, that whole system. So he's going to come on with Dr. Jarvis, Dr. Sani, and I'm just going to wrangle the circus because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I know what I know from doing it here, but I'm going to be in student mode. So uh, Sunday at what did we say? Four Pacific? Four Pacific, yeah. Four Pacific. So it's going to be an early one. So you people on the West, the East Coast can s- shut your snap, snapper trappers. We'll get you on an evening finally, right? Anyway. So it's like the fourth or fifth one we've done this month. That's great. That's good. That's yeah, great. Really well, and I'm honored to be uh, in the mix here. First first time, uh, which is excellent. Uh, and I'm getting some questions since for those of you that can't see, I've got a, let me see if I can show this. I've got a live audience here of fellow volunteers at Mason County 17. Hey, welcome. Yep. That's not the first time we've had a live audience, just so you know. Oh, good. Good. Uh, they are wondering who the heck you yeah, they're they're definitely the best looking group of live audiences that we've had so far. Yeah, we've done live stuff before, buddy, haven't we? We have. We used to even we did a couple of live shows, which I'm hoping we could actually do again sometime. Oh, you mean when we <laughs> can actually get around people and yeah, exactly. We did. Interact. We've done a couple of shows in front for Oregon EMS conference and the Timberline conference. So yeah, that's so good. No, nope. uh, Amy, we still can't there. hear you. I'm sorry. He's he's don't go into panic mode. It's okay. Rutu and I can handle the the business <laughs> end of things here. Um, but this is live TV, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's live TV. What are you going to do? Uh, but for right. the benefit of 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 your audience there, so just real quick, and maybe some folks that had not tuned in before, we'll just go around real quick and and uh, do a quick introduction. But my name is Mike Verkest. I'm uh, the media manager guy and an educator here with Flight Bridge Ed, host of well, I should say co-host. Thank you. Thank you. Of the second shift podcast. Thank you very much. 
which is what we're watching right now. I work for um, a, a large fire district. I'm a captain with the EMS division and uh, do training and just all the other EMS jobs, basically, that there is. Um, and I got about 400 amazing people that I work with. So uh, that's it in a nutshell. That's the boring stuff. But anyway, <laughs> what about you, Dr. Sonny? How long you been in EMS, Mike? This is, I think this is going to be my 25th year. Sweet. I'm, pre I'm pretty sure. Why don't you introduce yourself? So, hey, yeah. So my name is Ritu Sani, and I am an EMS physician and EMS medical director um, here in the Portland metropolitan area. I'm the medical director for two of the suburban counties around here. Um, and as a result, I'm the medical director for a couple of fire departments one large fire department uh, in which Mike is an EMS captain is one of them, um, <laughs> as well as um, a couple of uh, private uh, transport ambulance companies, too, who have the contract for the 911 transport. So we have a mixed system here, as most of you know, where we have ALS first response and, um, and then ALS transport by private uh, companies. Yeah. Yeah, and so then uh, that, and then I work clinically in an emergency department um, as an emergency physician uh, here in the port in the city of Portland, and then for Flightbridge Ed, I am the co-host of the Second Shift podcast and the associate medical director in charge of the podcast division. Yeah, the podcast division. So what we've got here is we have a podcast network. Oh wait, Hello? wait, hey, there you are. All right, so let me try this again. Hold on. Oh, it works now, though. Don't try anything. <laughs> All right. Still working? Yeah. Yep. All right. That a boy. All right. Yeah. So anyway. Back in. Oh, okay. Good. Podcast division. So we've got the Flight Bridge Ed podcast, Second Shift, EMS Lighthouse Project. We've got the Standard of Care. What's up, Sam and Nick? I know you guys are watching. By the way, brand new hot episode of that just dropped down, and that's all about the legal issues surrounding vaccines can your employer make you should they make you is there a case law what about workers comp boy i don't know you'll just have to go listen to the standard of care podcast it's awesome it's all about legal issues in ems the best thing going right now i'm telling you besides second shift that's pretty good it's more you know it's probably more professional than second shift yeah oh my god there's this whole piece in there about religious exemptions <laughs> Yeah. And she talks about sort of being Jewish and, and yeah. celebrating Hanukkah, but yet eating a bacon cheeseburger, you know? And so it's like, you know, I would be familiar with that. Yeah. So she's like, yeah, I do it. So it would be awfully hard for her to say I decline based on my religious exemptions because she has sort of a track record of not really, you know, whatever. So anyway, you got to check it out. It's a great, it's a great episode. It's about 50 well, minutes. That's good. Yeah. And Sam, happy eighth night of Hanukkah last night. But let's let's learn about Jamie. So now that we can actually hear him. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie, tell so, us about you, buddy. Yeah. Uh let's see. Um uh start with probably the most important part. I'm a paramedic. I've been a paramedic for I think about 12 years now. Uh I'm also just recently promoted to professor um of um of the EMS department that we are uh, jointly offered between Oregon Tech and OHSU, where I'm the director of the paramedic program there. So for for people that don't know, tell them what OHSU is. Sorry, Oregon Health Sciences University, uh, uh, 
the only medical school in Oregon, uh, big teaching hospital, level one trauma center. Um, yeah, right in the, the heart of Portland. Indeed. Don't ever build a hospital on the hill. No, that's a bad idea. Give you a free man on the top of a hill for your hospital. Just say no, thank you. <laughs> Good mansions up here. We would let rather be next to the freeway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Too late. <laughs> yeah, and maybe most views though. Yeah, maybe most importantly, uh, I'm also completing my PhD in medical sociology, and so right. um, I've got oh, depending on who you ask, maybe about twenty percent of it left here. The last twenty percent, uh, um, as they as they call it, ABD, all but dissertation. Ah, which means yeah, just a lot of solo, solitary work. Quite an accomplishment for just being a paramedic. <laughs> and we we actually had talked about that in the past. I like all these paramedics having and getting their PhDs, and it's awesome because we need that, right? It yeah. is. I agree. We need to get these. Uh, these MDs out of our, our business doing research in our industry, you know, some of them have a particular interest in it. Some of them just kind of freelance in there. <laughs> hey, it is a specialty. It's not your industry. It is all of our industry. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, That's- say goodbye to Jamie for insulting the host. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Click. Goodbye. <laughs> so, uh, is your dissertation on the topic that, that, that we that we kind of have teed up for today it is you got it tell me like how i know you and i have had conversations about we've known each other i'm trying to remember kind of how we met it was through you being the program director at oit and um i know but i know we've our paths have crossed multiple times um but what made what was kind of like the thing that got you interested in the topic of of disparities in care in ems yeah, I, I wish it was some epiphany, but I, I think as I worked through the coursework portion of my PhD, it became really obvious that there was uh, a lot of literature on disparities in almost every other area of medicine. Hmm. And like EMS, I just kept seeing these big blind spots from a research standpoint to say, why hasn't anybody looked at EMS? It is ripe for all kinds of research. And now that now that the data sets are becoming more available and electronic and massive, you can start to ask some really complicated questions of it. Uh, and so it was much more of a curiosity of, well, if I'm seeing disparities happen in oncology and emergency departments, in nephrology, the list goes on and on and on. Nephrology. Yeah. Wow. Why, why haven't I seen this yet been explored in EMS? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's probably an easy question. There's probably an easy answer, and it's not it's not a good answer. But you know, <laughs> I mean, look at the state of EMS, right? We're still measuring IV success rates as our that's our that's a data point, right? We're looking at care, baby. Yeah. Even, even better response times. Yeah, right? we're looking at response times, right? So, so uh, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sometimes those things matter. Right. But so, I mean, it's just sort of the state we're in. So it doesn't surprise me that we haven't looked at that. Right. I mean, really? Yeah, I I agree. And I mean, it's not, it's, it's difficult. Um, There's no funding for it for some of these questions. Um, Or I should say there's very little funding for it and it's an uncomfortable topic. So people, people avoid it. Right. So maybe, maybe that's where we should start. 
um, before we get too deep is, you know, the, the, the title for the podcast tonight in the show is disparity, right? Disparity question mark. And there might be people that don't really even know what that means. They're like, what are we even talking about? So how do you, how would you best describe it? And then how does it apply to EMF? Yeah, it's a big question. Uh, so I, I think I approach it from a couple different ways with my students primarily. Um, one is getting an understanding of disparities in health, right? And so there's a huge understanding and body of literature that supports that not everybody lives the same, um, not everybody has the same amount of health, right? It's not as if we're all starting from an equal starting place. So, um, and particularly we're talking about racial differences here, right? Because disparity is a very vague word and there's, um, there's differences by a lot of different social categories. Race is one of the most prominent ones. And so if we look at differences in health, and one way to measure health is lifespan. It's a common way to measure health. Um, there are persistent disparities in lifespan of people of different races, right? And so if we start with a kind of an umbrella understanding of that exists, that's real, that's factual, and importantly, that's persistent, over the last hundred years at least, right? That everybody's lifespan has gone up, but there is a persistent disparity between the lifespan of whites and blacks as one example. And so as you start to dig into the social determinants of health that create those disparities, one of those social determinants is the quality of healthcare that's received. And so, and importantly, it's a really small impact on lifespan and health, healthcare in particular. And there's a lot of other social determinants, right? Like nutrition and exercise and um, stress that are, have huge impacts on lifespan. So we're talking about just the impact that healthcare has. And then we start to get into, well, maybe one of the mechanisms that's impacting the difference in health is a difference in healthcare quality right? Mm -hmm. As well as access, right? Two very important, very distinct items. And if there's many studies that have done a great job of, of uh, controlling for access differences, and when they do that, they still find a different quality of healthcare being provided to individuals of a different race, even though... Uh-oh. You kind of you froze. You said, yeah. even though... And then we didn't. What would you say after that? I think he's still frozen. Yeah, I think he's still frozen. Let's just let's transition to a second to the article that you wrote. Sure. So you you just wrote a uh, a piece for EMS World. Yep. And I throw a little picture of it up on the screen there. And then as soon as Jamie oh yeah, there it is. Yeah. Gets back in there, but but um, <laughs> so this was largely based on Jamie's work, right? I mean, I, and then of course your own observations and in your own experience as a physician. And although I didn't put them in there, my own experiences as kind of a brown dude, news, news flash to everybody. Um, <laughs> and, and just seeing how attitudes are different um, kind of across the board in my own experience. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, I, oh, he's going to try, <laughs> try and try Try again. Um, and, and uh, you know, I had read Jamie's work. Um, I've talked to Jamie a little bit about 
trying to do our own equity and, and disparity work in, in the systems I'm involved in. Yeah. Um, and we're going to, I think, have some opportunities to do some of that work as we get better at data, which we are actively working on. Um, but uh, yeah, and then the opportunity, you know, at FlightBridge Ed, we write a monthly column um, for EMS World. And, yep. and uh, my turn came up and I said, you know what, this is an important topic to me and I think it's interesting. And so I wrote the column. And Jamie's work is the most recent um, and probably kind of the largest piece of work that was done on EMS. There have been other smaller studies that looked at EMS uh you know, disparities in care, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, Jamie's was sort of the most, um, the most, uh, recent and largest. And then, you know, I like Jamie, I think he's a smart guy and I wanted to highlight the work that he's done, um, as part of that. Uh, yeah. So I wrote the column and mostly got a lot of positive <laughs> response. <laughs> well, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Mostly. And, and you did, but so I, I guess the the question really at least comes to me because I've obviously I've heard Jamie's um, uh, presentation on disparity and, and it revolves around pain control mm -hmm. and, and uh, taking care of people of color and and to see the actual data that shows that this problem exists, right? Right. It's our own data. Like it's yep. us. It is us. It was literally us because a majority of it was from our system. Yeah, obviously this got this got a little bit more press. We got a little. We understood it a little bit more because it was our own data yeah. from our own state that Jamie looked at. But you know, part of the point of my article was I had kind of like a couple of points that I was thinking about. One is you got to do the work. You got to. You got to. You got to like any other quality of care piece yeah um you, you got to measure it you can't improve unless you measure yeah right measure that's what jamie really did for us is he kind of opened our eyes to to here's a measurement that shows there's a problem yeah um and if we can get him i'd like him to go through kind of what he did and what he came up with um <laughs> <laughs> he's gone he's gone off the broadcast again so that's all right we'll just we'll yeah. just keep talking a little bit about it sure um but I think the other piece that's so so you got to measure. But I think the other piece that I wanted to talk about was, um, kind of wanted to make this as like unthreatening as possible. Well, yeah, you know, um, I wanted, uh, and that's why I wanted to talk about implicit bias in particular, because um, I don't think people fully understand this idea that we are all all of us myself raised with bias that is sort of ingrained into how we think um and we we don't you know we're not consciously like i can tell you that i am not consciously i i do not want to be consciously biased right right i but i can also tell you that if I sit down and look at, um, you know, do an evaluation, there's an implicit bias test that you, that I do have biases. I mean, other than people from Ohio, cause I fucking hate them, but that, that's, a, that's totally different. Um, oh, other than that. <laughs> um, it's like that old line from, from the Mike Meyer, from, from, uh, um, 
for Austin Powers, there's two kinds of people I hate in the world. Those who judge other people and the Dutch, the Dutch, (laughs) but but I love the Dutch and I have a Dutch, uh, actually I have a Dutch uh, fire marshal. So, but, but um, you know, people don't choose. I think most people don't choose to be biased. Right. Nobody nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to treat people badly. Now I think there are people who, may genuinely believe that their group is somehow better than other groups. And I think that that's just wrong, but, but the reality is, is that's not, that's a very small percentage of people in this universe and certainly not the kind of person typically that goes into EMS. Agreed. Um, But the bottom line is when you look at the data and when you ask people about their experiences, um, there is a difference in the care that is provided based on various things, based on gender, based on race, based on socioeconomic status. Um, and those things, if people aren't consciously doing that, then that means those things are baked into the system somehow. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get them out is to measure those things and then actively, like any other thing, attempt to improve. So as, as Mickey Eisenberg says, measure and improve. Right. So like one of the things that Jamie was sort of getting to was that, you know, it's an uncomfortable topic and it hasn't had a lot of studies and people don't generally look at it. Right. And and do you think, is that because we don't want to know? Is it because we don't want to believe that we could be doing something wrong sort of subconsciously, or I don't even know how you would describe it. It's not subconsciously. Is it, is it, is it, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how, I don't know what word to use. Cause like, I, you, I think it is, I think in a lot of ways it's unconscious. You're not consciously doing it. Right. Um, I think it's a tough, I think, I think there are a few reasons and I think some of them unfortunately are sort of political. Um, but I think, I think number one, again, most people don't want to be told that you're a racist or you're a sexist. And, and again, part of my approach to, to this discussion was to, in fact, try to absolve people, right? I, I don't, you know, to try to say it's not your fault that these things are happening, but these things are happening. Yeah. So how do we fix that? Yeah. And, and and part of that is looking inside at yourself um, and seeing where you might have unconscious bias or implicit bias. And then part of it is looking at the system itself and see how it's basically set up to fail based on some of these factors. What, how, how could somebody who is maybe a clinical leader, someone that's in charge of quality improvement, stuff like that, what, how would you begin to even take a look at your data? How would you even begin to, to, to begin the process of measuring? Right. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I will, that I'll tell you that we found out when we started looking at stuff was um, it looks like Jamie's back. So I'll try to get him in here in a second. He looks like he's moving. I want to finish finish my thought because it's, it's important is just from a documentation standpoint, I don't think we do even a good job of collecting race right. and, and and even sometimes gender, right? So how in yep. the world would my data set, my data set would be completely incomplete? 
you know? Mm-hmm. There right. How's this look? Can you hear me? So good. Give us your whole information in the next 37 seconds, please. Hurry oh my up. God. <laughs> before, before the Wi-Fi gives out. Yeah, my apologies. Uh, that's okay. It's, it's, you know, that happens. All right, what did I miss? Oh, nothing. We were just filling in the gaps. We, we solved the whole problem while you were gone. Doing a little soft shoe, <laughs> tap dancing. Excellent. Yeah. No, I mean, we were just, we, you know, we just had Ritu sort of talk a little bit about his article that he wrote and how, you know, a lot of it was sort of, sort of largely based on your work that you've done, his own experience as a person of color um, and, and really just the things that he sees. And, and so we just started talking about sort of, you, you don't know unless you measure and approve. Right. Um, and so, and then that's when we got into just kind of the fact that it's, you know, my own data set probably wouldn't even allow me to do the right kind of measurements because we are not, collecting the data like we should be yeah no i think i think that's a great point right what gets measured gets managed um as as been quoted um and that's also one of the fascinating things to think about when i've given this talk around the country that um there's so much anger and denial uh despite not having people look at their own data. It's just an anecdote that they don't feel, you know, and I get it being confronted with an understanding that their belief of how they may have been practicing and the actuality of how they may have been practicing when there's a big gap there and they're confronted with it, with their data, that can be a lot to process and absorb. Um, but absolutely. Yeah. And I think Mike, to your point, um, Part of the importance, uh, uh, I guess, some of the impacts that I hope this study has is to put this on people's radar. Mm -hmm. And because the whole ecosystem involved needs to be reviewed, including at the very beginning of charting race, right? Charting patient demographics. Um, Because I think that there's not been a lot of attention to the importance of that. And that that provides the visibility to get into some of this um, more complicated understanding. Yeah. So now basically that, Oh, I'm sorry, Ritu, go ahead. I was going to say, what I would love to do is just, we're sort of talking about this and we're basically just saying it exists. Yeah. Uh, But I would love to hear from Jamie, just a kind of an overview. I mean, I, I did it in the article. I talked about Jamie's study as well as some other studies in in um, in EMS and actually in kind of healthcare, and I think the one point, the point that Jamie made up front, where this exists all throughout healthcare, is really important. We're not unique. I mean, nobody's saying that EMS people are terrible people, and the rest of the healthcare is saint are saints. The reality is that disparities in care exist throughout the entire healthcare system. Um, but just a, like an overview of the work that you did with the data set and kind of kind of how you measured it. And, and, and because I think it also provides a good framework. I mean, to me, it's a good study to read and go, OK, we can measure that in our system as a tool. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you. I'm, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm glad that it provides that. Um, yeah. So briefly, I use the organ um, EMS or the organ nemesis system. Right. So. Most agencies at this point by law in Oregon have to upload data to the NEMSIS system. And when you do that, it initially goes to the state and the state then filters it up to the national data set. But the state's got a lot of uh, variables that national doesn't have. So I went to the state to say I wanted to study this. So that's the data set that I used. 
And at the time that data set, so we're looking at data from 2015 to 2017, I'm just looking at traumatic injuries, right? So just folks that had a traumatic injury. And then, you know, let me know how much detail you want here, but just asking that data set two questions. One is who receives a pain assessment, right? And this is the lovely zero through 10 score. And who receives pain medication? And that's just a dichotomous one or zero. I'm not looking at dose variation. I'm just looking at who received pain medication, right? And so we had about, if I remember right, somewhere around 27,000 total charts that I looked at across all EMS agencies in Oregon, which at the time was about 70% of all EMS agencies in Oregon were uploading data to NEMSIS at that time, right? And so the findings in a nutshell were that patients coded as Hispanic and Asian were much less likely to receive a pain assessment, Hmm. right? And then when we looked at pain medications, all racial minority categories studied, including African-Americans, Asians, and Hispanics, as well as races categorized as other, which is is a collection of a bunch of folks, we're all much less likely to receive pain medication. Hmm. And what's important here is that also there's a, a huge number of controls because as we all know, administering pain medication can vary for a number of reasons, right? Pain score being an obvious one. People that are in more pain should receive pain meds versus people that are in less pain. So controlling for receiving a pain score, controlling for the pain score that they did produce or did record, recording for gender. And importantly, I think, Ritu, one of the big takeaways that I hope if agencies try to replicate this is um, controlling for patient insurance status, which is used as a proxy for socioeconomic status. Yeah. Right. So this is really important because unfortunately, still racial minorities are disproportionately found in lower socioeconomic stratum. And also, unfortunately, there's a disparity in care based on socioeconomic status. So unless you control for or adjust for socioeconomic status, you don't really know, you're not able to isolate the effects of race. Right, so, makes sense. Yep. Yeah. This study in particular was unlike, and was the first time that that's been done in EMS. The other handful of studies were largely only descriptive in nature and were not able to control for socioeconomic status. Um, and still yet described their effects as being racial disparities. And it's my argument is you don't know unless you control for socioeconomic status. What you could be seeing is socioeconomic status disparities and not race disparities. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. That's, but that also is a disparity that you want to measure. Oh, yeah. On too. Yep. Yeah. And it's awful and it's gross and needs to be studied, just not something that I studied specifically. Right. Yeah. And, and, and uh, yeah, so you found that, that in certain groups there was no pain assessment and then other groups were, I think he froze again, um, were, were much less likely to receive pain medications. And he also like one of the criticisms was, well, did you control for, uh, but he, he also broke it down. It, you know, it was the group that had higher pain scores 
where that discrepancy still existed. And so it wasn't like one group, everybody had a two and the other group, everybody had like a nine. And so, mm-hmm. so I, I think, um, you know, that's, that's really a kind of a important piece to point out. Um, so again, I mean, it's just, it's the kind of thing that your system can measure, right? Yeah. yeah and there are other things that you can measure too. And I, and I think, I think the important message is that there are, we have patients who rely on us to receive care that receive care that is different solely based on their race. And and the only way to fix that is to measure it and improve it. And, and, you know, we talked about why is this hard or, or, you know, I think we can talk when this study came out, it received a lot of local, Mm -hmm. a lot of local news coverage Mm -hmm. because it was done locally. And, and, um, you know, and, and the largest set of data was from AMR company that you were working for at the time and that I work with now. Um, and, and to the management, to, to the, to the, um, you know, the management of AMR at the time, it's still the same folks was like, they were great. They were like, yeah, we we're this is a problem and we really appreciate this work so that we can try to fix it and work on it. But they did go talk to some individual medics, throughout the state, not just in one location. And there was, again, this sort of defensiveness, you know, everybody's the same. I hear this a lot. Everybody's the same in the back of my ambulance. Right. Obviously that's not the case. That's just not the case. Right. And it's, and it's funny because, you know, I've been thinking about this particular broadcast and this podcast. And unfortunately, Jamie's having some IT issues and is is frozen out, but I've been thinking about this all day. And, and I can't help but think when I was out running calls like that, this would never occur to me. So is it, is this a language barrier problem? Is this a, I mean, I feel like, like I want to defend myself. Why? Because I'm a good person and I do. And I do. You're not a good person. You're a wonderful person. And I love you with all my heart. And you know that, right? Yes, of course. So what, instead of wanting to defend yourself, why not say, why not say, one, when I was out running calls, I am sure that this happened because it probably did. Did it and though? Two, God damn it. I don't think it did. I don't it think did. it did. I'm a good person. I I take You're care of all person and i love you but it i don't happened. Even know i don't even know people's insurance status how can that be a thing i don't know if they're poor or rich now if i pick them off the side of the road in a, from a homeless camp then that sort of tells me one thing but maybe that kind of well let me let me talk about my own self then okay i can tell you that in my career as a physician that i am a 100 percent sure that i have treated people differently even though I did not want to. I probably did. You got yeah. it. So, so number one, you know, acceptance, right? Just say it. I didn't do it on purpose, but I'm pretty sure that I pro- that this probably happened under my watch. Yeah. So then the next piece is, well, then how do I fix it? How yeah. do I make, how do I make it better? Yeah, now there are systemic things, right? 
there are, you know, one of the topics that I talk about in the, in the article, um, there is a discrepancy in bystander compressions based on race and socioeconomic status. Mm. Now that's clearly not having, does not have anything to do with the EMS crew responding. Of course. Not. Right. But what do we know about bystander compressions? It, you know, it improves survival significantly. So why would the, it's, it's intrinsic upon us as we create our system and design our system to do things like not only measure our compression rate, but starting to break it down by race, census tract, those sorts of things and identifying, um, you know, so why might it be that there is no, um, that, you know, that there, why might it be that that rate is different? Well, 911 doesn't, there's no Spanish. Maybe that's why. Or, you know, we don't try, we don't. We had excellent. He's back. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. But keep, keep going. So, so far you're, you're looking good there, yeah. buddy. Finish all of our, all of our bystander compression training is in English in our community. So nobody did that on purpose. Nobody said, Oh my God, I don't want anybody else involved in this. I'm just going to put it out in English. Cause that would be like an openly like racist thing to do. But somebody said, I only got a hundred bucks to do this and I'm going to have one class and it's going to be in English. So that's an example of like the system setting it up to fail. You know, um, that's, that is really good. Like I, I appreciate that. And in thinking back, I will tell you an example that just popped into my head. You brought up the CPR training. Like we went to the mall and did like a CPR Saturday thing. Right. And we had the little box, you know, HA little Annie's that you just inflate them or whatever. And you give them to the families or whatever, take it with you. And we had only the Caucasian white colored mannequins. Uh, we didn't, we just ordered CPR mannequins. Right. I didn't know. I didn't know that you can get those mannequins in Brown, uh, white, yeah, exactly. One of those things right yeah, there. I got one with the white people on it, too. Yeah, well, the white, the white people are on, on all of them, but the mannequin is still white family on the back. <laughs> but it, somebody actually brought that up and it, at, when we were out there doing that. And, and at the time, like, it didn't really even, like, I didn't think, I didn't, I didn't think about that. You know what I mean? Like, and not, not because I'm trying to be insensitive, but no, we just ordered CPR mannequins, right? Like I didn't know you could buy brown. I would have bought them. I, I, I didn't do that. So I guess that, I guess that just sort of proves the point, right? Like I didn't intend to offend somebody. I didn't intend to not have brown mannequins. I didn't even know you could buy them. Um, so, so let me interrupt you right there. So more importantly, cause when you start saying you offended somebody, then people start, well, getting a little bit like, Oh, this is, you know, about being, politically correct and not being offensive, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm, I'm just thinking from inclusion. Exactly. It was yeah. a barrier to including everybody yeah, that yeah. you were unaware of. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. And I, and I think, and that's why I think it's important that, that, you know, measuring and removing disparities of healthcare outcomes should be one of the goals of an EMS system. 
Right. And, you know, um, Ross is, is uh, Chavez is watching with us and he's got some great comments in here. Um, and he said that there's data that may shed some light on disparities within EMS, but more importantly, how do the um, uh, uh, people of color community leaders perceive the EMS agency that serves them and what do they want? Like that is a great comment. Right. I really appreciate sure. that. And um, he also mentioned that the colorblind argument neglects the whole patient oh. and their God bless him. Historical. Oh, Ross, God bless you. <laughs> yeah. So Ross brings up a great point that if you haven't touched on it yet. So, right, when I think about EMS's role in the community, exactly as Ross points out, there's kind of three major roles that I think they serve. One is it's it's access. So somebody has to engage EMS services first, right? There's an access question. There's a treatment quality question. And then there's a community education component. This study, importantly, just looks at the treatment quality, right? And I think one of the things that medical directors particularly struggle with is I'm not talking about outcomes. I'm talking about the process of care mm -hmm. because a lot of EMS systems, a lot of providers at the street level, right, we can't worry about outcomes. We, we hope our medical director designs protocols to produce good outcomes, but a lot of our job is about executing excellent process, high quality process. And so this particular study looks at the quality of the process of care. But importantly, as Ross points out, there's a whole other area of disparities around calling 911, right? There's oh, yeah. some national data that based on the types of emergencies, yep. racial minorities just don't call us. No, they don't. We, in fact, right. we had we had our buddy G. Wade on here. Yeah. Um, and we talked about that a lot right yeah. it's just heartbreaking heartbreaking right to have especially time sensitive emergencies and the community tell you i don't trust you to come to my home to deliver health care i would mm -hmm. rather risk my life driving myself yeah god dang um right and so this is also not on the radar that needs to be on the radar when we think about disparities in general and then the third being community education right there's a whole area of of who are we educating, just like you were talking about, how are we educating them, how are we reinforcing the trust, um, et cetera, with the community members. And, and I really do think that, that um, you know, systems aren't going to do anything about anything unless it's part of their value, mm -hmm. part, part, part of what they value and part of their mission. And, and just like I really strongly believe that an EMS system should include research as part of its mission mm -hmm. to improve health outcomes for the entire community, I think equity of care should be. Um, and, I, and, I, and I get what Jamie said about process outcomes and, and pro measuring process, but equity of outcomes also is part of the measurement. Absolutely. And, and, and again, yes, the challenge is how do you do it in a way that people don't feel threatened? Um, you have to challenge people though. You have, I mean, you have to challenge people to look at, the, look internally, to look at themselves, to look at their own biases. Um, and then you have to measure and improve. And, and, and I think those are kind of like, you're, you've got to take a scientific approach to it like you would anything else. Um, I, I'm not here to blame anybody, but I want to make sure that it's better. And, 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 uh, yeah, and I will tell you, uh, Ross's comment just hit home. I'm just going to say it. Anytime a white person says to me, I don't see color, I'm like, yeah, good luck with that shit. 
because because that's actually discounting my entire experience as a brown person. And, and I'm a brown person who's been really lucky. I grew up in a suburb. I grew up with parents that had money. I'm a brown person. I went to a private. I mean, I'm a very, I got a lot of things that work in for me. But at the end of the day, when somebody says, oh, I don't see color, just this is a complete disregard for your experience, which was different than everybody else's. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a, message here and i think we touched on it a bit but just to touch on it again this is not suggesting ems providers are broken or really are biased i think a lot of this message is that there are system level um, policy yeah. practices in place that don't allow providers to to easily provide high quality care to everybody right many of them i think were touched on when i was off trying to convince my hamsters to go faster on my internet um, was that, um, you know, patients that are unable to speak English, yeah. right? That's a, that's a, a good size population. And uh, I've spoken with AMR about. Oh God, there he goes again. There he goes again. He said the hamster word. And it went <laughs> off, right. But, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll build on, I'll build on his, his comments. I mean, you know, we have where I, so I'll just use my own clinical experience. Um, you know, we have interpreters, uh, he, uh, no. you know, we use interpreters in the emergency department and I would say they're of varying quality. And, and I can tell you that um, sometimes like patients will come in and because using the interpreter is a physically difficult barrier, right? How so? Cause you have to do something extra hmm. anytime you have to an extra strep. I mean, this is very well demonstrated in process, right? Leaving out anything to do with bias, but just yeah. in general, whenever you add an extra step to a process, it drops off the yeah. participation drops off. Yeah. So when you have an extra strep step to have um, the interpreter, that means there are patients who don't, have the interpreter. There's also cultural issues where some patients want to say that they can speak English because they're worried that they might not get good care if they say they speak another language and they will try. But I can tell you that, that, you know, so they'll get, we'll get patients who come in who they don't use the interpreter for the triage. And then I go talk to them and this time I use the interpreter and I get a completely different story. Now, to be honest, that happens all the time with everybody <laughs> in yeah, summer. Sure. but the challenge of, of the interpreter driving things. And so, so that's, and that's nobody at any step of the way is intending to treat the, those people. This is a great example. No one's intending to treat people differently. It's just, there's a physical structural barrier that makes it harder. Yeah. And, and, and that, you know, and to, to be quite honest, I think a lot of this work is around those sorts of things now is around the structural physical barriers that just make it harder. Now that doesn't explain why people of color get, don't get asked. Well, so the, so the, the language barrier piece is probably an issue. You know, if you can't communicate with your patient, you're not, you can't ask them one to 10 right? If you can't exchange any words with them at all, right? Sure. So you're not going to document a pain score. 
that doesn't mean you're a racist. That's what I, but that means that the, the structure does not allow you for you to take the same care of that patient. Yeah. I did have a hilarious conversation. I had a patient we were using the interpreter. I can't, I'm, I can't remember what language we were doing. It might've been like Cantonese, but, but I said, and sometimes when I'm using an interpreter, I find that folks struggle with a little bit with the one to 10 score. So I usually just ask them how bad is the pain kind of upfront first. Yeah. And then, and then I'll kind of go down to the one to 10. But so I said to this patient through the interpreter, I said, so you know, how bad is your pain? And the patient responded and the interpreter comes back and says, well, you know, usually when I go to the doctor, they ask me to score it on a one to 10 scale. And it was, it's about a seven. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, you totally knew what was going on there. Yeah. So we're just talking about structural, like, like I think based on what you were talking about, about AMR and language issues, about how language barriers are a great example of everybody's intending to do the right thing and take good care of patients, but it creates a structural barrier that leads to differences in quality of care. Yep. And uh, it looks like I might be back a little bit, which is great. Uh, my apologies again. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the other structurals, and I think we are running short on time here, is just our CQI practices, right, hmm. within an agency. Equity is not, not on the chart here. Um, and we tend to think about it in a silo instead of thinking about for every time we look at um, cardiac arrest performance, splitting it out by groups to make sure that everybody's getting the same high quality of care and not just some groups, hmm. right? So that at the agency level, at the EMS chief level, the folks that are doing the QI work uh, have this and are looking at this. What's tricky, though, is this requires some extra skills, and it's not just looking at single charts at a time, right? You got to look at a couple hundred, a couple thousand charts at a time to be able to see the effects, see the differences, right? which is not commonly done at most agencies. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, we're part of the CARES network, right? I mean, you know, we're talking cardiac arrest. Um, presumably they get all that information too, but I have never, I have not seen a, a report on black indigenous or people of color. I've not seen that spread out anywhere. Am I missing that? Nope. You're not. not out of cares. I mean, there's, there's definitely, there are definitely studies that look at cardiac arrest survival. I think there was even a study that might've looked at it in the rock data set. I'm not hundred percent sure, but there are definitely studies. And I think I, I referenced a couple in my article, that look at cardiac arrest survival and find that there's definitely a difference in survival um, and trying to break them down. I think that bystander CPR is actually kind of one of the bigger factors involved in that survival. Yeah. Um, I think, um, it, um, you know, we joked about response times, but um, response mode in time, um, I think probably AED, especially usage, uh, especially in lower socioeconomic areas. Um, I think those all kind of play a role. What was interesting is, you know, the other solution, um, there was one study that looked at, um, uh, looked at high quality, and actually our friend Dr. Modaya was one of the authors, hmm. but what looked at high, looked at the, the impact of telephone CPR instructions. And it seems like high quality telephone CPR actually bridges that barrier where if you have a system 
where, where systems which are are doing good telephone CPR instructions, you end up with no much less of a discrepancy or no discrepancy by race for for CPR. Mm-hmm. So again, another example of a system fix that can potentially impact outcome for groups that uh, potential that are um, may have w- otherwise worse outcomes. Yeah. Well, it looks like we lost our buddy again. So let's just get out of here. We're having struggles. I'm ready to start my vacation. We've got another live this Sunday. If you tuned in late, you know, we did a live just on Monday about the MRNA vaccines, COVID vaccines. What's the deal with that? Well, we've got part two of that. This time we're going to look at it from the EMS Lighthouse Project perspective. Uh, Dr. Sani is going to join Dr. Uh, Jarvis and uh, Dr. Vithalani. Yep, you got it. That's a tell you gotta you gotta be sure on that one because this that's good it can be tricky. Um anyway, and we're gonna go over what does the research say about men be bald white men. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, I'll tell you what we're gonna do though, is we're gonna do this podcast probably again sometime. And maybe we'll just have a better, you know, maybe Jamie will get out of the sticks. Anyway, I'm going to get us out of here. Hey, listen, thanks for joining us tonight. We just gave you about an hour, but Mike Verkest, Dr. Ratusani, you've been listening to and watching the Second Shift podcast. We're a proud member of the Flight for Jed podcast network and Fire Dog Production. We will see you guys later. Take care. Thanks for joining us. Second Shift is a production of Flight for Jed LLC at flightforjed.com.